everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. My guest today is Rob Poole. He's professor of social psychiatry at Bangor University in North Wales, where he co-directs the Center for Mental Health and Society. He works as a clinician at Wrexham Myler Hospital with the Liaison Psychiatry and Pain Management Teams. His clinical research interests center on the social and economic determinants of mental health. His main current research activities concern high-dose opioid use in people with chronic pain and the care of people with persistent psychosis and self-harm in South Asia. His writing includes scientific papers, book chapters, and several books. He's also been a gigging musician since the early 1970s. In 2009, the Critical Psychiatry blog described him as, quote, an old-fashioned radical, unquote, and he received the Royal College of Psychiatrists Lifetime Achievement Award in 2017. And so with me today is Robert Poole. Hey, Robert, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Thank you for joining me. I'm really glad you could come on. Every time we talk, we seem to have an interesting conversation, at least on my end. I wish you'd tell my wife that. <laughs> well, it's true. I don't I don't have to live with you 24-7, so that might make a difference. <laughs> it might. So we had had some chat back and forth about things that might be interesting to talk about the pandemic and 2020 and the political environment and all of that. And you are willing to give your perspective both professionally as a psychiatrist and also just your opinions as someone living abroad and watching the sideshow that has become American politics. More than happy to discuss it. The first bullet point that I had on the list of things that we had said are potential topics was the 2020 British perspective on political trends. That's Brexit, Trump, the pandemic, and BLM. Okay, that's quite a lot of stuff. And of course, I speak as someone interested in politics, not as a psychiatrist here. Firstly, Brexit. There's clearly an international movement that has become very disengaged from the political establishment. And it's a, almost a truism to say that, that Brexit is a reflection of that. The interesting thing in the UK, just like in the US, we are very, very divided. People who are anti-Brexit Remainers, so-called, are particularly bad at understanding the perspective of that part of the population who voted for Brexit, which clearly is about 40% of everyone. There's this huge split. It is certainly the case that just like Trump lost the election, and I'm pretty certainly lost the election, I think there's some swing back from the the position that we had at the time of the referendum here. But certainly the way that things have developed, just as you have the Rust Belt in the Midwest, we have the whole of the north of England has been in a very deteriorating condition and never really enjoyed much growth or prosperity over the last 40 years. It actually dates back to the policies of the first Thatcher government. And, and there was this miners' strike here that the miners lost. And that broke the British trade union movement But the closure of the British mining industry was done very abruptly and without any attempt to replace those industries, that industry in those places that were very dependent on mining. And I think that you you have to understand Brexit in the the context of that movement and a Labour Party, which historically had been the representative of, of working class people here, but had become very, very detached from, deliberately detached itself from them. So I think these are the conditions where you do get more polarised positions. In anticipation of this evening, I I thought quite hard about the parallels between Boris Johnson, 
who you'll be aware had a huge success in the general election about a year ago. And Donald Trump, I mean, both of them have come from privilege and yet attempt to successfully draw their support from working class people. They both reflect something of what people would like to see reflected back at them. I think this kind of laddishness, as we would see it about Boris Johnson, was a large part of his appeal, because he certainly isn't a man of any fixed politics. And I guess there's something in Trump that reflects something back to people who don't live on the coasts in America that speaks to them in a similar way. Johnson also doesn't follow the rules. He managed to get the Conservative Party to vote for breaking international law and and not abiding by the the agreement that he himself came to earlier this year with regard to leaving the European Union. And just today, there's been a big fuss because a report that he tried to suppress about Priti Patel, who's our Home Secretary, bullying civil servants, he's refused to act on. So, so we see many of the same things about these populists, no particular political, no, well, no fixed political views. And, we, you know, Trump moved Democrat to Republican and doesn't seem to have an actual political program. And both of them very dependent on very kind of alt-right thinkers in coming up with their ideas. So, so there's something international going on. As you know, I spend a lot of time in India. We're doing work in partnership with um, some universities in, in India. And something similar has happened there with Mr. Modi, who's, who's a similar populist. He's not a man who's come from wealth, however. There are some dissimilar similarities too. But this kind of populist movement appears to be happening across the world. For those of us who are broadly of the left and believe in social justice, and it's a very frightening movement. There are some definite parallels between what's happening now and some of the things that happened in Germany in the 1930s. But I think it would be wrong to overemphasize those parallels because neither Trump nor Johnson is actually a fascist. Some of the things they stand for are akin to fascism, but they're not the same thing. We're in new territory. But the thing just looks sitting on this side of the Atlantic, looking over at America, about Trump, is that it's very hard for people in this country of any political persuasion to understand the appeal of Trump. We look at Trump in horror. His deficiencies as a person are startlingly obvious. You don't need a psychiatrist to say that this is a a pretty unpleasant person. And even people of a conservative mindset. I actually have some friends who are of a conservative mindset. Some of them really quite right wing. They don't like Trump. And so from this country, he looks pretty grotesque, actually. Now, I guess that's how he looks to the liberals in America. But clearly, the fact that there's this large section of the population who think he's absolutely splendid is equally something that we look and just don't understand. We, it, it isn't that we don't understand the conservative urge, but the fact that anyone would think that a man of this character would be a good person to lead a country seems extraordinary. What you're describing, not to be repetitive, is somewhat descriptive. But where is this coming from? It's about a set of views that have no voice, have no representation. In this country, we had quite a large working class movement here that politically had a voice through the Labour Party, which was really established as the political party of the trade unions in alliance with what you suppose you'd have to call left-wing intellectuals. And the new Labour years broke that relationship with the Labour movement. Um, Not completely, but it certainly became much more distant. And as a a larger part of the population, particularly people who went on to college and so forth, became more affected by the values that developed in the post-1968 period, the culture war stuff and and the identity politics, it alienated those people who felt very left behind and struggling with increasing problems in finding decent and secure employment 
and who seeing the world around them changing. So in this country, with increasing numbers in the past, increasing numbers of um, South Asian migrants, and in recent years, increasing number of European migrants in this country, blame the migrants. Of course, the fact is that, that it, had nothing, it has nothing to do with migrants. And you can, you can clearly show that the problems that have been experienced, particularly in the north of, of England, by, by working class communities, are completely unrelated to, to migration. But nonetheless, that's the way it looked. But that voice had no expression. And then opportunistically, groups spring up. We had UKIP and, and Nigel Farage, who I think you'll be familiar with. Again, all the people from very privileged backgrounds, but purporting to represent ordinary people mainly by their willingness to express views that have become taboo amongst an intellectual elite. And the fact that people ignore the personal deficiencies of people like Trump and Johnson, I don't think is new. Let's just remember for a moment that 1972, Richard Nixon won by a landslide. McGovern did incredibly badly. I think McGovern only won two states. And that was despite the fact that many of the main facts of Watergate had already emerged prior to the election. This wasn't in ignorance of of Watergate. This is in the knowledge of Watergate. So there's nothing new about that. And similarly, we've had some pretty unpleasant people. I mean, people here absolutely worshipped Margaret Thatcher, who had this kind of humorless, lacking in human warmth, strict headmistress quality about her, which I was always surprised that anyone found appealing, but people did. So I don't think there's anything very new about it. In many ways, people don't want warm human beings as political leaders. I think what they want is a kind of a, a reflection of something about themselves back from their leaders. Uh, whether that's a good thing or not, I don't know. I mean, it's one of the things that people say here of the Labour Party is that the most successful Labour government was led by a Clement Attlee after the Second World War. Now, Attlee, who was Prime Minister between 1945 and 1951, was the most colourless individual you could imagine. He was almost devoid of personality, uh, at least in public. What people want reflected back to them is not successful policies. It's something else. It's something more colourful. And we, we brought back Churchill in 1951, who had been on a landslide, rejected after the Second World War. So I think there's something about what leadership means and what we look for in leaders. We don't look for attractive leaders somehow. One of my questions, though, is when I look at the U.S. Midwest and the farm country, these flyover states that are all just land, and you have an immigrant population that comes here and works on these farms. They work in agribusiness, yet this is the same areas of the country where Trump is promoting that the immigrants are rapists, are murderers, are drug runners. I'm trying to figure out, I guess, in my own head, how a population both utilizes these workers and then is happy to denigrate them and make it hard for those workers to come across the border. Additionally, if I'm in a situation where I see a small town community shrinking and jobs are going away and the community is dying and our industry is dying and Trump comes along and says he's going to promise to bring jobs back, I can absolutely understand wanting to believe that. But I don't see how it translates to I will take my gun out if you ask me to wear a mask. And I think it's totally okay if the police stand on a black guy's neck until he suffocates to death. I back the police. Right. I think this speaks to the nature of xenophobia and racism. I think if we just think for a moment about attitudes to minority groups, it is invariably the case that the most xenophobic and racist areas are the areas where migrants live. That's overwhelmingly true. 
Migrants tend to settle in places with other migrants because the, at the end of the day, the ghetto, whether it's a rural ghetto or, or an urban ghetto, is a defensive formation. And when you can see people over there who look different to you, you're quite prepared to believe almost anything about them. It's like the way that disputes between neighbours arise so easily. The fact that you're in close proximity actually exacerbates the problem. The research in this country shows that anti-black racism, which hasn't gone away, of course, became significantly less marked as white people started having relationships with black people and white people found themselves related to black people by marriage. And then they had kids who regard, you know, grandchildren who regard themselves as black and so forth. And that does have a very tangible effect on people's attitudes. That's something we know. And therefore, groups where that level of integration happens, the racism becomes less more rapidly than groups who who are separated longer term by things like being Muslim, because they're living by different rhythms, by different rituals and by different standards of behaviour. reminds me of something. We have this thing that's come into vogue in the U.S., and maybe it's just always been there, but now we hear more from people who are racist, strongly racist. I, you know, a lot of people are racist, and I know that I have harbor some racist attitudes that I work on and that I've expressed publicly to my friends on Facebook, for example, where we talk through these things. And I'm hearing some people denying systemic racism. I'm looking at statistics for social health metrics, and I'm seeing almost across the board where black citizens are marginalized and doing much worse in these social health metrics when it comes to access to health care, health care outcomes, mental health care access, when it comes to uh, stress-induced problems, when it comes to education opportunities, employment opportunities, uh, heritable wealth, housing insecurity, food insecurity. When I can look at every single one of these social metrics and see a correlation to race that goes beyond economic disparity, I don't know how to respond to somebody who can look at that and say, but I don't believe in systemic racism. Um, Of course, you're absolutely right. All those things are absolutely true. And in my own field, you know, in psychiatry, we've got a, a massive evidence now that shows that, for example, people's risk of developing psychosis as adults is markedly influenced by their exposure to structural racism as children. We've got we've got scientific evidence. That isn't some opinion. That's that's something that we and, you know, I could talk through the nuts and bolts of the evidence for that. But of course, the thing about people's at- attitudes to race and actually nearly everything else is it's not built on rationality. So one of the things that always strikes me about America is how the legacy of slavery is right in your face. It just seems really obvious to me when I go to America. And it seems to me that in the UK, we didn't have slavery happening around us in the country. It was kind of outsourced to the Caribbean. And whilst British society 200 years ago was very much built on slavery, it didn't actually happen here, which led to a different set of racist attitudes. In America, it's a central factor of the way your society was established, and it's never gone away. But people want to wish this away. People want this not to be operative anymore. And to understand the continued disadvantage of black people as being a consequence of some characteristic of black people, not a characteristic of disadvantage. And I think that's how the psychology of many ideas work. And in some ways, we've kind of been much less successful in dealing with racism than we 
you thought you were. You know, when I was a kid, I grew up in, in central southeast London. I could have walked into central London if I kept walking for an hour. And we had quite a large black migrant population locally. And open expressions of racism were absolutely common. Absolutely common. We had racist comedians on the television. It was appalling. And one of the things that really was pleasing was that that went as I got older. It had become really quite a serious, socially unacceptable to, to express racist views openly here until Brexit. And then Brexit happens. And all of a sudden, it's like zipping back to the early 1970s again. And suddenly we... We start hearing people openly expressing racist ideas again. We had somehow suppressed the expression of those ideas, and I think that's right because it's, I don't think black people should have to live with open expressions of racism, but somehow we hadn't changed hearts and minds. And so we fooled ourselves that this stuff had gone away, and it hadn't. And I think that's one of the shock, shocks for me of what's happened over the last 10 years, and particularly over the last five years, that some of the things that I thought had gotten better looks like it, they haven't. I think the situation in America is, probably similar in many ways except I think in many parts of America open openly expressed racism has never been particularly socially taboo I think there are parts of America where you, you heard this stuff quite regularly even if you were an English visitor so I think the fact that we've still got racism I'm not surprised but I don't think it's something that's sprung de novo I think it's something that has been suppressed and has now been facilitated in its expression I'm not really at all surprised by what we see and it's not surprising that when you've got people like Trump who have haven't actually got any particular fixed political ideology, but who want to be popular, that they will go for those common denominator political slogans. Although I have to say that I do think there's a fair bit of evidence that Trump actually all along has been a bit of a white supremacist. But I don't think it's actually a coherent part of a political programme. I simply think it's something that facilitates his rise to power. And then we see that then suddenly becomes a very large problem because there are other forces who are facilitated by that. Okay, so I wanted to move on to another question which we had on the bullet list, which involved the impact of marginalization and roles of social systems, personal behaviors. But one of the things I hear pretty often on this side of the pond is people comparing marginalizing language, so racial slurs or ethnic slurs or gender slurs, with phrases or language that are just merely offensive or insulting. So somebody will throw down a slur that is tied to a marginalized group. And when someone gets upset about it, they'll say, oh, you're just offended or you're just insulted. You need a thicker skin. But they don't seem to recognize the difference between an insult, like a word like asshole, that is an insult, and a word that is like the N-word toward a black person. That is marginalizing language. And when you have a social system that is set up that denigrates and isolates and abuses people that are in particular categories, categories, treats them as subhuman or less than a citizen, that word is part of a structure that keeps those systems going. So it actually is a damaging language. It's not just insulting or just offensive. I think that's that's clearly right. But I think one part of the um, the fallacy around this, oh, you're just, you're being woke, as they say here. I don't know, do they say that in, in, in America too? Oh, whoa, yes. Woke your snowflakes, it's all too sensitive. 
Well, the first thing is don't underestimate the power of offending people. We know that one of the the things that is really, really damaging to people's long-term mental health is being bullied as a kid. And being bullied as a kid may involve violence, but it doesn't always. It often involves being the butt of continuous jokes and and being psychologically messed about, but certainly by being marginalised from a peer group. And and that has a big impact. So let's let's not pretend that being offended is necessarily some minor thing, particularly when the, the person being offended is in a relatively less powerful group. So it seems to me, yeah, fine, if you're someone like me, um, a white male uh, with some social status, then being someone saying something offensive to you doesn't have that much traction. But if you're someone who's got very little power, having some a slur made to them by someone who's in a relatively more powerful position, of course it's, it's an expression of that power, an expression of your marginal powerless position. Uh, it's reinforcing it. And, you know, this stuff does have a tangible effect. Like I, you know, I, think I said in an earlier bit, growing up with uh, with racism is a factor that is associated with a higher and a significantly higher risk of developing a psychotic illness in your adulthood. We have clearly and quite convincingly excluded the possibility it might be something about people, black people or migrants, that makes them, in some other way, some other factor, makes them more vulnerable to this. So, for example, we know that, that if you're an adult who comes to this country... As a migrant, then you don't have a higher rate of psychosis than the rest of the population. In fact, you have a lower rate of psychosis than the rest of the population. But when you have kids here who, who regard themselves as British but black, to black British people who are exposed to, to structural racism and casual racism, then it does have an impact and it has a very major impact on their mental health. So I think it, you're just being offended. No, it's not just anything. You're just trying to exert power over me, is the answer. I just wish there was a way to get people to understand that a little better. Well, you see, I think at some level they probably do understand it. Some racists are very powerful. Donald Trump would be a case in point. A lot of racists feel themselves to be very powerless, and their own sense of powerlessness drives their their wish to make some make sure that there's someone else who's in a weaker position than them, which makes them feel better. I've been in groups where they've made them open to what they're calling open to dialogue or open to conversation that includes questioning things like, is racism real? Do you really deal with racism? Or if a black person is killed by a cop, was that racist? What I've tried to get them to understand is that when you open up a forum, when you have a group and you open that group up to conversations that actually questions the marginalization and questions the systemic nature of what these people are demonstrably dealing with. Like you said, this isn't a fantasy. But when you express that and then you're hit with a bunch of people in privilege who are saying, oh, you're just making this dramatic expression of something and it's not that bad. Ultimately, the people that are marginalized are going to leave that group. Yes, of course. And so what I've tried to explain is when you're trying to be diverse by being inclusive and you're including intolerant bigots in the group who are dismissing, marginalizing, erasing, and denying the real experiences of what's happening with people who are marginalized, ultimately you're going to end up with just a group of bigots. Yes, that's certainly true. And changing racist ideas isn't a one-step thing, right? Whilst British racism is quite different in its expression to American racism, it's still racism and it still has the same impacts or some of the same impacts. 
for me, one of the big things that I really see a lot of in the UK is that people believe that because they're not ideological racists, in other words, because they're not white supremacists, therefore nothing they do can ever be racist. And of course, it's, that's nonsense. It's complete nonsense. And you can certainly be part of whole systems that are racist whilst regarding yourself as an anti-racist. So actually racism, like all other forms of structural power, isn't simply a question of shifting one idea. The realities of racism, it takes time, unfortunately. It isn't something that changes in one go. I mean, certainly, despite this re-emergence of ideological racism in the UK, actually the number of people who hold racist ideas are far, far less than they used to be. And some things that are akin to racism aren't actually exactly the same as old-fashioned racism, so it changes a bit. But I think it takes time, and I think we just have to be prepared to just keep on talking. The difficulty with it is, is that when, at the point at which you put your finger in someone's chest and say you're nothing but a racist, whilst that might be true, it doesn't actually help very much. It's, it's experience that changes things. And certainly my own thinking about racism was very affected by sitting in the early 80s in groups that were talking about racism within mental health services with people who were very, very angry, who were saying, but you're a racist, me, Rob. And of course, my reaction to that was pretty negative. And it took me a long time to really think about what was why they were saying that and what that really meant before I got my head around. Yeah, well, I guess I am part of a racist system, actually. And if I want to do something about it, I'm going to have to do something very active. It takes time. And I don't think it's simply about winning an argument, so to speak. But we are in a, in a difficult position, I think, because, as you say, we seem to end up in fora that become more and more and more like-minded um, and have less and less and less interaction with people who are of a different persuasion or some even subtle gradation of ideas. And in some way, I think, so, you know, social media have made that worse. We tend to all end up shouting into an echo chamber, and that doesn't help anyone. What I've started doing on my Facebook page is anytime I identify something racist that I'm doing, thinking, saying, I post about it and I say, hey, I am a racist. Here's the latest racist thing I did, said, thought, you know, was called out to me that I was involved with. And then we have a discussion about it. And another thing that I try to do is encourage people on my Facebook page to sign up for forums or follow people on Twitter or just go and find a forum where anybody's welcome and apply for that, get in there. And this is generally with marginalized groups. Go to them and then don't comment. Just go and listen. Go into that forum. Don't lie about your identity or anything like that. Just say, I'm here to learn. I want to learn. When they let you in, go to those threads. And no matter how defensive you feel, just keep reading. Don't comment. Just listen. And I've found that just by listening and seeing, like initially I might see something that makes me step back and say, I don't understand that or that doesn't sound right. And then when I start to read the thread and I start to read the comments by the people who are impacted by whatever they're talking about, I begin to understand and to realize how they're looking at the world and how this is affecting them, which is generally a very paradigm-shifting exercise, whatever you want to call it. 
that's absolutely right. I mean, certainly, I, I work in um, North Wales now, and I have done for the last 16 years. But for 16 years before that, I worked in central Liverpool. And Liverpool's a very deprived northern city with a very marginalised black community. And, and the patch I worked in was where the black and Chinese communities lived. And they were very, very alienated from mental health services. Not just mental health services. I mean, the, the way they were policed was absolutely appalling, you know, when I, certainly when they first started in the late 1980s. And people kept coming up with schemes by people, I mean, well-meaning but naive doctors and managers came up with schemes to improve things, uh, the relationship with the black community. It never worked. Of course, what worked was to reaching out to people and saying, what do you want? What would you like us to do? What would you like our services to look like? What would make a difference? That, I'm not going to tell you what you need. You tell me what you want. And then let's work out how much of that we can do and how we might set about getting there. And that, that made an enormous difference in the end. And we did make lots of progress. Of course, it is also characteristic of this that having got to the point where, where the relationship between the black community and the mental health service had improved significantly, it wasn't perfect, but it had improved significantly. When I left and a number of other people left, those innovations were some of the first things that were dismantled when people wanted to save money or to restructure services so you have to do that but you have to keep doing it the problem was that having improved the relationship with the black community it was a job done as far as the system was concerned and then it thought you could neglect everything again and you can't this is a an incremental long-term struggle to do something about about structural racism really I think that's a big problem here as well, because there is this history in the United States of doing things for the black community instead of involving their voices and letting them be stakeholders in what happens to their communities. That's part of what is very motivating currently in the political climate for people of color to see themselves represented. And that's another thing I think that is sometimes presented that can be maddening is when people don't understand the importance of real representation. So they'll use an example where they'll say something like Obama is a better representative for Tracy than Trump, even though Trump is white and Obama is black and male, but he was an advocate for many of the things that Tracy wanted to see go forward. So why can't you just have any good advocate? What difference does it make if it's a woman? That modeling is important for people who have not been in power. And there are people who don't understand it because they've always been the people that have been represented. Yeah, and I think, and in a sense, Tracy, that then loops back to the previous argument, why Trump, why Johnson, why Nigel Farage, why do people want to follow people like this? Because imperfectly though they are, they reflect back to them something that they feel represents them. Do you see why I'm making the analogy? Sure. So, yeah, we need a female president and we need one quickly. We need black people in, in senior positions. It isn't simply a question of, if you like, proportional representation of, of part of the population. It's something much bigger than that. It, it's something about, do we take people seriously as part of the population? And do we take the fact that they've been marginalised seriously and that they've been disempowered seriously and that we're going to do something different? Right. And a lot of times when people are trying to argue against that, they'll take tokenized representation, right? So they'll take somebody like Sarah Payne and they'll say, you know, here's a woman and she doesn't represent you well. Do you want women like that in power? So they take examples that are examples of people who have internalized the bigotry against them and internalized the marginalization against them who are sort of helping to perpetuate that and say, well, see, it's not about somebody just being 
just like you or looking like you, but it is about somebody who models that behavior. It's important for black children to see black Congress people. It's important for young women to see women Congress people. We have a saying, if she can see it, she can be it. And it's just about the idea of how when you don't show people opportunities, they sometimes don't think about them. If you don't tell her she can be a congressperson, if you don't tell her she can be a doctor, then she won't think of it. Sure, I completely agree with that. Although I think there's also another phenomenon. So, for example, 70% of medical students in this country are female. Before very long, we'll have a majority, a female majority in medicine in this country. It's been associated with a drop in the status of medicine. (laughs) And that's... And unless these things happen, unless you get women right across the whole of society in senior positions, all that happens is, if it happens in particular professions, it just changes the status of that that profession. It no longer becomes a high-status profession. What that illustrates is it's got to happen in every every corner. Right. We call them here pink ghettos. Yeah. And this was happening when I was in college. I studied journalism, news writing, editorial. And there was a push for more women in journalism. There were a lot more women going into that vocation. Yep. And the salaries were dropping commensurate with women flooding that market. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, a friend of mine, a guy who's a professor of psychiatry in Manchester, Lewis Appleby, is one of the people who runs uh, our National Confidential Inquiry into Suicide and Patient Safety. This is a form of surveillance around suicidality, and he collates very high-quality data, both about situations where people who have been under services have taken their own lives, but also about trends in suicide in general. And there's been a huge fuss. He got absolutely savaged on Twitter when they showed that there had been no increase in rates of of self-harm and suicide during lockdown, at least in the part of lockdown that we've got statistics for now. That outraged people because particularly people who are very against lockdown say, well, but but there's a huge, been a huge increase in in, in suicides. That's going to be offset against the lives you might save by, by not allowing people to mix. I wasn't surprised to find there hadn't been an increase in suicide during lockdown. During the Second World War, which, you know, a hugely terrifying event in the UK, suicide rates dropped very substantially. You would have thought economically things weren't very good people got bombed in their own homes my parents lived through the my mother in particular lived right through the blitz my mother never left england she was a school child at the threat of invasion and domination by nazi germany it was very real no one actually believed before actually before america and russia joined the war no one believed that we, we really stood much of a chance of winning it and yet rates of suicide dropped and actually in periods like this that's something that tends to happen However, that isn't to say that COVID and the pandemic aren't a threat to mental health. They are, but probably not quite in the way that people think. I would say that the effect on children is probably pretty negative, and we're not going to be able to have, have any very good evidence about that for a while to come. But I, I do think that the effects on kids are particular concern of not being able to mix with their peers and so forth, and not and being out of education for substantial periods of time. However, it isn't the fear of COVID 
that will cause the biggest problems, actually it'll be if we see an increase in inequality. Because what we know is that the things that really affect mental health are how people live every day over long periods of time. So we've had austerity in this country, we've had massive cuts in public spending, and a a really big deterioration in the quality of everyday life for ordinary people over the last 10 years. And particularly when unemployment has risen, suicide rates have gone up. And when unemployment drops, suicide rates go down again. But against the backdrop of mental health in general being affected by levels of poverty and inequality and other measures of social injustice. Now, post-COVID, the world will recover. And economies will recover. But the question of is how they recover. Because there are some countries that are going to be very severely hit. We are going to be particularly badly hit in the UK. I think that's absolutely certain. We've got Brexit coming up. It's going to be very difficult for this country's economy to recover. And we've got really an extraordinarily right-wing government in place without any particular convincing political programme or economic programme. And if we allow further policies, as we saw when all those years when Mrs Thatcher was in power, increases in inequality, we will see increases in level of mental ill health. However, if we were to do it a different way and actually try and make things more equal, conversely, there's an opportunity here. And it, it doesn't have to be the case that mental health suffers. This isn't some, to use an emotive word in this context, act, act of God that comes out of space and there's nothing we can do about it. We actually are the masters of our own destiny here. And all health is affected by social injustice. And if we put some things right, then the world can look a bit different. Now, when you've got Johnson in power in this country for at least, probably for another four years, or, or, or at least a Tory government, that doesn't look too good. Although there are Tory governments that have, that have been, actually have improved equality. So the, the, the John Major years in this country, which was from about 1990 to about 1997, actually we saw some improvements inequality in this country. So it isn't necessarily just a left-right split. But certainly, there's an opportunity around a Biden presidency. Now, I, I know by British standards, Joe Biden is not particularly left-wing, but I think by American modern standards, he probably is. And there's an opportunity there. Yeah, and I think that here in the US, we have a little bit different setup than you have in the UK. So, for example, our schools are funded by property taxes, which has an impact, the public school system, it has an impact on the quality of schooling depending on your zip code. So when we have a pandemic where school moves to online and you're a child who doesn't have internet at home or you don't have a laptop at home, you have to go to the library and the libraries, you know, maybe open, maybe not open right now during COVID. Or there was a uh, an article here that sort of went viral of two little girls, I think they were um, Hispanic, and they were sitting on the sidewalk outside of some cafe so that they could use the internet to do their homework. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that's so different to here, actually. Um, certainly the quality of schools is closely associated with you know the demographics of the area. Where I live, which is a kind of a, a, a semi-rural area, we've got perfectly good state schools. If you go to, into the inner cities, the schools are often struggling. My old school, for example, um, is in special measures. And interestingly, my, the area of London that I grew up in is socially very mixed. But of course, what's happened in the UK is that we, we developed a whole new private sector in education over the last, well, only over the last 30 years, but 
and consequently schools like mine the middle class kids go go to private schools and so these uh, a school that was a perfectly decent school when i was there now is serving a population that's very deprived and they don't get much and the consequences are dire and, and moving online i mean the, of course the thing about online i don't know what literacy rates are like in the states but in the uk they're very poor we've got we have some of the worst literacy rates in europe here and actually quite a large proportion of the adult population are not fully literate but that creates a big problem if you want to work online and it's a big problem for the kids if their parents aren't fully literate and can't help them with online stuff so you know getting online is the world moving online is actually very bad for people who are already disadvantaged right no I, i understand that and when you were talking about disparity it was the first thing i thought about and move on to the next bullet point that we had, which was opioids. Yes, opioids. I I gave a lecture about opioids just yesterday to a British psychiatric audience. I try not to give a lecture, although it's always my default position, unfortunately. So opioids, you you have your opioid crisis in the United States, and I've read quite a bit about the opioid crisis in the United States. And whatever is happening, it might be happening in the United States, it does look different to what's happening here. We have a whole different problem with opioids. As far as I can understand it, you know, there's a narrative in the States that really says that opioids have been hugely overmarketed and a lot of attention is focused on the Sacklers and Purdue Pharmaceuticals and Oxycontin uh, as being at the forefront of that. And leading to these, you know, establishment of pill mills of people setting themselves up as pain specialist offices, as pain, sort of pain specialists and just prescribing opioids very freely. And then that has in turn fed a, a new market for illicit heroin on the streets. Now, that isn't what's happening in the UK. Medicine is organised in a completely different way, famously organised in a completely different way in the UK to America. But actually, we have had no increase in, in heroin addiction in this country. In fact, heroin addiction is dying out. It's a, an older person's drug. Drug use in general is, is still pretty common, but we certainly have no epidemic of street heroin use. However, we do have a big problem with the overprescription of opioids. So the same kind of statistics total number of opioids prescribed have increased very substantially. And I saw this in my practice as a, as a psychiatrist. I was increasingly seeing people from about 20 or 15, 15 or 20 years ago. People were turning up who were on amazingly high doses of opioids and very intoxicated. And I saw a few people who would you know, fall off the chair, literally, when I was interviewing them. And I then became interested in this area. And when I became a a full-time academic, which was about 11 years ago, I took the opportunity to start working with a local pain management team. And we've got a large program of research now about opioids. And we've been publishing quite fast. This year, I think we've we've had about five papers accepted for publication. And we've got about another two or three that will be submitted in the near future. So the story is this. It is true that prescribed opioids are misused. And we've done a study in a local prison that has shown that that's very, very common. Large numbers of people who end up in prison are on prescribed painkillers. And some of them are misusing them or selling them if they're not misusing them themselves. 
However, there is a very substantial problem with people who, have been, who are in chronic pain, who are on painkillers and fall into a trap. They and the doctor fall into a trap. And the trap is that they start taking opioids. The dose gradually has to be increased. And that's partially because opioids in particular, you develop tolerance. And so you need to have more to get the same effect. But there's a twist that is actually surprisingly little known, even by doctors, which is that opioids cause pain. All painkillers cause pain. They change receptor function in your body when you've been on them for a long time. But what happens is, yes, they relieve pain, but they also cause some pain. And you need to take more of the drug to relieve that pain. So roughly speaking, in the UK, about half of of everyone who gets referred to a neurologist uh, is suffering from headache. And when they are seen by the neurologist, the cause of the headache turns out to be painkillers. And if they get them to stop taking the painkillers, the pain goes away. So that's true of about a quarter of everyone that ends up in front of a neurologist. Half of the people with headaches have some other cause for headache, but half of them, it's just the painkillers. And they're not usually on opioids, although sometimes they are. Those are just ordinary standard ibuprofen type or paracetamol type drugs. But with opioids, what this opioid-induced hyperalgesia isn't very significant in low doses, but it becomes significant and more significant as the dose rises. And there's been a move that's really arisen in the first instance from the palliative care movement that says you just keep increasing the dose of medication. And that message didn't originate with with the drug industry, actually. It actually originated with Dame Cicely Saunders, a British physician who internationally was one of the people who formed the palliative care movement. And at that time that she was working, people were very reluctant to prescribe opioids to the dying. And that was very wrong. And that's what she was really arguing. If you're dying, you should be given as many opioids as relieves the pain. But that, if you're not actually dying, that's a big problem. And it's kind of morphed into a different message. I see people who are taking very large doses of opioids where actually what they believe is that their underlying painful condition is gradually deteriorating requiring more and more medication. And so when doctors say, you're on an awful lot of medication, you know, they take that to indicate that the pain is, underlying pain is very severe. And therefore, if they were to reduce or stop the medication, they'd be in uncontrollable pain. And actually what I do is that I get people off these medications if they want to come off them. And and we do sometimes taper them down, but that's quite difficult because the pain gets worse, then it improves, and you have to do the whole thing again. It can take months and months and months. So quite often I just I bang it straight down very quickly, not to nothing, but to very low doses. And you have to give people a lot of support because for a few days it's moderately unpleasant. But people end up much better because what they lose is a huge amount of side effects and adverse effects on their thinking, on their mood, their ability to develop motivation to do things. And we've got some, some findings that are in press about the outcome of, of using that approach. So there's a different story about opioids. And the different story is that it may not be about addiction, actually. It's not about bad patients who are pretending to have pain. And it's not about necessarily about bad doctors because there are lots of misconceptions, I think, about how you manage pain that are right out there throughout the profession. I don't think that the pharmaceutical industry has helped very much, but I'm not absolutely certain that they're really the fundamental problem. However, there's another twist to this, which, of course, that the origins of chronic pain tend to be social origins. So people who end up with chronic painful conditions, we all end up with some pain. If you know, I'm 64, I've got some pain, most people have some pain, but people who end up with really nasty painful conditions tend to be people who are struggling with a whole load of other things as well. And rates of chronic pain are much higher the more deprived you are. And, and what happens is if you're someone who's living in a relatively deprived area, you tend to get less good medical services, something that was uh, articulated by a Welsh doctor 
called Julian Tudor Hart as the inverse care law, where he said that the, the, the amount of care basically goes to the least ill people. And what happens with pain is that the obvious thing to do, if you haven't got much time and you've got a patient sitting in front of you who's in pain, is to give them more and more drugs. Actually, non, non-pharmaceutical, pharmacological uh, solutions work much, much better. There is a role for medication, but it's quite limited. Uh, we actually can't abolish pain other than the circumstance where someone has died. But of course, again, to get those interventions, you have to have good quality services, which a lot of people cannot access. So there's a whole story here about opioids that is rather more complex than the one that says, oh, well, it's, it's all been oversold by the pharmaceutical industry. And now that's been translated into a massive number of heroin addicts, as it appears to be the case in America. The situation here is a very different one, but I, but it's it's quite a serious problem actually. It's the number of people on high dose opioids is continuing to increase, and we've got longitudinal data showing that, showing that it's probably increasing. We set high doses as um, the or equivalent of 120 milligrams of morphine a day for at least a year. That's that's our definition, our, our research group's definition of long term high dose opioids. We've done a community study repeatedly over the last four or five years and we've seen an increase of about a third extra more now than the rate that we saw at the beginning so there's a lot of people on these high doses and if one can extrapolate in a very simple way from the figures that we have generated which isn't necessarily the case but if you just do a crude extrapolation we end up with with a finding that there's probably about half a million people in the UK on these very high doses who cannot get off them again that's a lot of people that's the end of the lecture by the way that's interesting. I, I just want to mention, I have some friends who are on treatment for chronic pain that is not going to be cured. So they're using opioids and have expressed concerns about some of the rhetoric around the addiction problem, or like you say, the narrative of the addiction problem, and their concerns about their ability to access the drugs that they actually need. And they see this as a long-term treatment for chronic pain that is being managed. Yeah, absolutely. And and the trouble is the rhetoric becomes very oversimplified. So I wouldn't argue we should withhold opioids from people in chronic pain. I think you've got to be you've got to respect opioids, recognise that they can make things worse, not better, and use them in particular ways. So many people taking opioids take them intermittently. And taking them intermittently, as long as you be careful with the dose, is absolutely fine. That doesn't tend to cause a big problem. It's continuous use that tends to cause a big problem and increasing doses. And it isn't the majority of people on who take opioids who are so effective, but it is an awful lot of people who are effective. Anyway, because so many opioids are prescribed. The question about addiction is an interesting one. You know, here's some interesting things. So people say, am I addicted? I've spent many years working with drug users. I'm very familiar with drug use and drug users. And street heroin addicts get withdrawal symptoms from their heroin very regularly. Because if they can't score for something because they haven't got the money or they, there's a drought, they go into withdrawal. They, they, they've been in withdrawal many, many times. People on prescription opioids very rarely experience withdrawal because they're on prescription. They take them in the dose that's prescribed by and large, and therefore they don't realise that they're going to get withdrawal effects. And quite often people will quite clearly describe having been unwell, for example, been vomiting and not being able to take their opioids, then finding that they got symptoms that they didn't know were opioid withdrawal. They didn't identify them as opioid withdrawal, but when it is obvious that that's what's happened to them. So the question is, is it possible to be addicted to something without knowing it? And if you then are told that you're addicted to it, have you now become an addict? 
And of course, there are such a thing as addiction behaviours. I mean, there are some behaviours that people show, like concealing what they're taking, hoarding stuff, trying to find multiple sources of supply. But the vast majority of patients with chronic pain don't do that. And one of the things that becomes quite obvious is that addiction isn't actually a category of thing. It's it's a number of behaviours that cluster in, in certain individuals. But there's an element of this that says that dependency and addiction is a moral judgment on someone because they're taking the drug for the wrong reason. If you're taking it for fun, that's wrong. If you're taking it for pain, that's okay. So this addiction kind of discourse is not really desperately helpful in this, this area. I am quite clear that I'm not suggesting we should withdraw the availability of opioids from people. However, I do think we need to make it much, much more generally available that people have got access to good quality advice about how to use their opioids optimally and that people should have access to good quality non-pharmacological management strategies of chronic pain. The thing about the patients that I see, my patients are very frightened when they come and see me. They've got to have been on 120 milligrams of morphine equivalent or more for, for a year or more. The average is about 240, 280 milligrams of morphine a day. I've I've had one patient on two grams of morphine a day. I mean, they're on very large doses of these drugs. And they are frightened that if they reduce, they're going to have unending, uncontrollable pain. The study we've done where we've got people onto very low-dose opioids, uh, none of them want to go back on what they were on before. They all feel much, much better. Some of them have, have are simply in much the same pain as they were before on the high-dose opioids. But many of them do experience an improvement in their ability to manage pain. And I don't press people to stop altogether, although some people do stop the medication altogether and do quite well without the medication. I should also point out it isn't just the opioids. There are a number of other drugs that are routinely used, which are, if not quite as corrosive as opioids to people's functioning, nonetheless have quite a big impact. And the gabapentinoids, that's pregabalin and gabapentin, are also highly problematic. So it isn't the case that there are good drugs and bad drugs. There's a general problem with, with drugs that are used for pain. They all have some role, but it's how you prescribe properly and get an optimal uh, balance of benefit and cost, really. <laughs> Okay, well, I think we can move on to the next bullet point that we've got. And this was music and mental health, but also the pandemic impact on musicians. Yeah, so I'm a musician, and I've been a musician almost longer than I've been anything else in my life. I learned to play guitar at 15 because Jimi Hendrix had died, and there was obviously a gap in the market. <laughs> and um, and until the pandemic started, I was still a gigging musician. And my social life is around musicians, and it's a very large part of my life. I've had a long-standing interest, a very long-standing interest, in the way that mental health problems are depicted with respect to musicians. So many of the ideas of my generation about mental illness were influenced by often a mythology, really, around the mental health of prominent musicians. Now, the, the people who are really stick out in this, I think you've probably heard about British beat group Pink Floyd. Sure. Um, yes. <laughs> and their original leader was Sid Barrett, who developed a psychotic illness and and never really recovered, and then died a few years ago. And Sid Barrett's mental illness was the subject of quite a lot of material that Pink Floyd released, but particularly Shine On You Crazy Diamond, which is a particularly striking bit of music, I think. The story around people like Sid Barrett tends to be they took too much acid, and then they, they went so far out they couldn't come back. 
a rather romanticised view of what happened. The revered British guitarist Peter Green, who very recently died this year, um, was somebody else who also had a psychotic illness, has over the years often been attributed to taking too much acid. And in fact, one of the more striking things that Fleetwood Mac, who were his band, the original Fleetwood Mac prior to, to Stevie Nicks, prior to letting some Americans in who completely ruined everything, <laughs> the, the original Fleetwood Mac, who were a blues band, had a one particular song, The Green Man Alishi. If you look at the lyrics of that song, and to some extent the film of the music, it is clearly around a developing psychotic illness. And the, the Green Man Alishi, so the song has got lyrics about this kind of green demonic figure. And the green demonic figure is money. And Peter Green said that that's what it was about. And he believed that money was satanic and was controlling him in a very literal way. And he got into terrible trouble when he took a shotgun to his accountant's office because he wanted to stop him sending him money because it was having a satanic influence on him and so forth. Actually, these people, uh, Brian Wilson, of course, is another one, probably. is the closest thing to, to a genius that pop music ever produced. Again, with Brian Wilson, it's meant to be too many drugs and he sat in his sandbox not doing very much for several years. When you, when you actually look at it, these people have got fairly standard mental illnesses that, you, that often afflict people of that age when they're in their late teens early 20s and you would expect some people who are prominent at that age to develop such an illness because these are not uncommon illnesses I actually think the much more striking story about this is that they develop these mental illnesses and still manage to produce really really great art despite being very unwell and it kind of illustrates the way that you're not subsumed by a mental illness no matter how serious it's just one thing about you and that's the really striking thing and certainly I, I saw Brian Wilson in concert in Liverpool a few years ago he was doing a tour where he did, mainly did well, well a lot of it was the old surfing stuff and he sang in his kind of now rather cracked voice in my room and I looked at my wife and we were both in tears it was one really one of the most moving things I think I've ever seen there he was making this magnificent music after all these years of mental health problems and, and there he still was in his 70s I've always felt that's the big story about mental illness in the popular imagination and in fact I had a, an editorial published in the British Journal of Psychiatry to that effect about 20 years ago that led to lots of invitations to, to give lectures about this. However, more recently, I got approached, because of, the, of some of the stuff I've published about this, I got approached, in much the same way as you approached me, about the religion stuff. People have approached me to talk to groups of musicians about mental health. And there's been great concern in the UK in recent years about musicians' mental illness. And I think there is at least some evidence that musicians do suffer quite high rates of anxiety, depression and other problems, which I think are closely linked to the fact that being a musician is a really, really difficult lifestyle. It's insecure. Even in this day and age, people get ripped off. The industry is not very friendly towards musicians. It's become even less friendly towards musicians in recent years because music is very hard to own. It's very hard to, to control your intellectual and creative property in the world of endless, perfect reproduction of music. And people tend to be very isolated. They lead very lifestyles that involve working at night and, and sleeping through big chunks of the day quite often. And of course, it's not a lifestyle that's particularly conducive to stable relationships, as anyone who's been in a band will know. I mean, you know, it's, it's a constant background noise of relationship breakdown, and that, there's some evidence that that's true. And of course, then there's, there's also the fact that it's a lifestyle that, that where substance misuse is, is very common. And I think one of the things that drives the substance misuse that's associated with the lifestyle is things like trying to come down off of the high of performing. Although the link between substance misuse 
and the musician's lifestyle is interesting because, of course, drug use in particular was rampant in the jazz scene in both Britain and America in, in the great classic period of small group jazz in the sort of 1950s and early 1960s. Jazz scene seems to have almost eradicated drug use use in the way that rock music hasn't, which is interesting. Now, in terms of the pandemic, the impact on, on musicians' mental health is, is absolutely awful. The gap between being a good but not professional musician and being a, a professional musician is quite small. And one of the things, interesting things about musical social scenes is that the gap between people who are playing with quite major artists and people who are playing in local clubs. There's no gap, actually. And so one of the things that I, I sometimes try and impress people with, but not, with no great success... So I played with someone many years ago who's gone on to play with Bob Dylan. I've got lots and lots of links like that. Someone I played with has got... And so you often are mixing with musicians who are basically playing with people at the, at the top echelon. And the reason for that is, is it's incredibly insecure even if you're successful. So the guy who are, who's actually played with all kinds of people over the years, who I played with, was touring with Bob Dylan at one stage, actually is playing exactly the same pub and club scene as me most of the time. And, and consequently, there's no buffer. Because you know, the lifestyle is, is insecure and the amount of money you can earn, you, you're constantly scrabbling for money. You have to play in pubs as well as play on big tours. And so when the gigs stop, as they have during lockdown, you've got a real big problem. And being a musician in lots of ways has, has got lots of resemblances to being a professional sports person. Because if you don't keep doing it, you lose your ability to, you lose your fitness pretty quickly. So the ability to play at the high, at a high standard does depend on continuing to play, not just instrument practice, but also practicing with, with other musicians is, is a very important part of it. You know, I've got this large circle of musician friends, and they're the one group who have really shown signs of becoming very, very, very frayed during the pandemic. And I think we are going to see some significant problems around musicians in the aftermath of the pandemic, because I think we there is going to be a gap. I've no doubt that musical venues will eventually reappear. They might not be the same ones as existed prior to the lockdown. But in terms of musicians' livelihoods, the degree of disruption is unbelievable. I would like to try and do a study about it. It's very difficult. We've, we've looked before at doing work on musicians' mental health, and the trouble is musicians are isolated. That's part of their problem. But how do you then find them in order to do a study, and how do you follow them up? It's, not, it, it's quite a conundrum. It's at least as difficult as trying to follow up prisoners when they have left prison, which is also quite difficult. But we think we can do that. But I think musicians are proving a hard enough to crack through. You have some music that you've done. You've been recording. You talked about being a musician for a number of years. And I asked you to send me a few selections that we could use for segues. And so the segues that people have been hearing throughout this podcast are actually original music that you've recorded. The two that they've been hearing in the in the segues are titled Three-Legged Dog and Fear Has No Dominion Here. Then I asked you to send me a song that we could feature, and you chose one called Hey Postman. Uh, hey Postman is um, is a very uh, traditionally structured blues. Not the most original thing I've ever done, but it's one of my own favourites, and it always gets a good response live. So we'll take a little break, go ahead and play the song, and then we'll come back and we'll discuss that. Got a mean old dog He prowled my place You knock on my door 
Dark stars in your face Got a reputation Around my neighborhood Everybody knows My dog ain't no good It makes me wonder What comes with the mail Cause when my dog sees the postman He rolls over And he wags his tail Mail brings news Some good and some bad Some letters make me smile Some letters make me mad The postman's a dude A regular guy He's got a little peaked cap And a funny look in his eye And it makes me wonder What comes with the mail When my, my wife sees the postman She rolls over and she wags her tail To the bedroom, looked under the bed. There's my wife and the dog, and the postman's face was red, and it makes me wonder what comes with the mail. She's like when my wife sees the postman, she invites him in and she wags his tail. So that's Hey Postman, which is pretty much about a dog that hates everybody that comes to the door, except for the postman who the dog apparently loves. So it's sort of like a reverse dog. And then later later in the song, we come to learn that everybody seems to love the postman. <laughs> everybody loves the postman. So you chose this one. Why? Oh, um, well, firstly, because because it's humorous. And I think it's it's not the funniest joke in the world, but it's something I'm pleased with because... I was very pleased with the performance I captured on that. It's got some slide guitar in it. I love playing slide guitar. And I like the way the joke unfolds and the fact that the joke is more an illusion than actually spelt out. And to me, the core image in it that was in my head was of the dog and the postman and the wife under the bed, which just, it still makes me chuckle. I actually wrote the song shortly after our dog died. Oh, wow. Um, but I don't think, as far as I'm aware, our dog didn't have that kind of experience. It's just, I thought, 
Well, you could write a song about a dog. I ended up writing several dog songs, but none of them were actually about our dog. Okay. Uh, our dog wasn't a very nice dog, I have to say. We didn't really get on. The, the, the rest of my family liked him, but I didn't really like that dog. So I didn't feel particularly um, sentimental about the dog. But it was just the funniest thing about the actual dog. We, we had the dog cremated, and they gave us back the ashes. And on Boxing Day, one year, my uh, younger of my two sons uh, wanted to scatter the ashes from the top of a hill very close to where we live. He was wearing a reindeer outfit and smoking a roll-up and clutching an open <laughs> bottle of beer. And we all went to the top of the hill, sang an old song, which I don't think was probably ever heard of in America, but how much is that doggy in the window? I know that song. Oh, right. We sang that song. And then we scattered the ashes, which then blew back in our faces, much as... The legend about Keith Richards' father's ashes, we all inhaled bits of the dog. And the, <laughs> and the family came along, and they just looked horrified. And I suddenly realised they probably thought we were scattering, scattering a, human. A, relative, a human ashes. <laughs> it, it was quite a scene. It, it, but, you, but, but you can't get that in a song, so I ended up making up something, because the Postman song is completely made up. That didn't happen. Okay. And how's your work progressed? How has it evolved? Well, you you have met, but the, no one in the audience, I don't think, has ever met uh, Catherine Robinson, who's uh, a prof- who's professor of social care research at Manchester University, who I collaborate have collaborated with a great deal over the last uh, ten years or more. Who's a, a keen music fan and, and particularly likes acoustic music. I, I've, I've spent most of my life playing in bands and playing electric guitar. Like I say, the first inspiration I had really was was Jimi Hendrix, and, and, and I was arrogant enough to think, "Oh, I can do that." Well, of course I couldn't, but it, it got me going. So I spent many, many years playing electric guitar. But but Catherine has always been very enthusiastic about the acoustic stuff, and has encouraged me to to play solo. I've always written songs. The earliest influence, I think, like many, many people, was probably Bob Dylan. But I've there's been lots of other influences. Uh, there's a, a British musician who I think is quite at least well known, it, probably in Texas actually, uh, Nick Lowe. You know, you know of Nick Lowe's work? Perhaps you don't. So it does sound familiar. I'm just not the biggest aficionado of music. Okay, well. And you live in Austin, honestly. I know. You, you could it's live ironic, anywhere. ironic, isn't it? <laughs> you could go and live in Houston. <laughs> anyway, Nick Lowe's a big influence on me. And uh, most of my music has got a link to blues or soul or jazz. But, of course, just the same as many, many, many other British musicians, it's seen through a peculiarly British vision. So under Catherine's influence, I've developed a, a kind of a solo career alongside playing in bands. So until lockdown started, I was playing in two bands. One was playing in a band backing uh, another psychiatrist, actually, who, who plays by the name of Lucas Marx. Really quite a good singer and songwriter with a band that's got a... It's, it's actually the least bluesy band I've ever played in. Much of his music's got a country or, or even bluegrassy kind of feel. There's a banjo player. Strictly speaking, I don't think banjo players count as musicians, but there is a banjo player. And I've got a, I've got a blues three-piece which actually this time last year, exactly this time last year, we played at the Cavern in Liverpool. I'd never played at the Cavern before, but we did do a gig. We actually went down very well there, which rather pleased me. And then I go out as a, as a solo act. So the, the stuff that you're listening to is, is my solo stuff. And I get quite a lot of work on a solo basis, partially because I play slide guitar reasonably well. I sometimes play slide guitar the kind of same kind of way as Rykuda 
would play it, and sometimes I'd play lap slide guitar, which for those of the people who in, in Austin who um, do like blues music and, and, and such like, uh, lap slide is something that's quite associated with David Lindley, who's a bit of a master of the of the, of the lap slide. And, and, and that's the stuff that really goes down best. In the UK, there are a surprisingly few good quality slide players, certainly compared with the number that you, you hear in, in, in America. Although we have got a real master of lap slide guitar living locally to us, Tom, Tom Doherty, a fantastic musician, nationally and internationally well-known player, who has has managed to become a, you know, a celebrated master of the instrument, despite the fact that he, he broke his back and got a, I think, got a spinal cord injury in his late teens, and it, so he's quadriplegic. But he has some movement in his arms. No, no one should accommodate to that. He is just one brilliant player. It was really watching Tom play that made me think, maybe I can do that as well. Um, not because I thought I'd be able to do, I would automatically be able to do it, but, but he just I thought I could do something with that. All of which is a very long-winded way of saying I do this acoustic stuff. A lot of it's instrumentals. If I wasn't so busy with my day job, professor of psychiatry is a bit of a busy day job, then I could probably do something with the music. Not so much necessarily the songs. The stuff that you're hearing is off my CD that I released two years ago. I've accumulated another album's worth of, of good quality songs that I was about to record when lockdown happened, but I will recall in due course. A lot of the music would actually probably work as film music, and I was very lucky. We recorded in a, in a, in a proper studio in Liverpool called Elevator Studios and Tom Roach actually recorded the, the CD and strongly suggested that I should try and market some of the stuff as, as music for television or, or film. Wow. But frankly, I haven't got the time to do that. But I like that atmospheric stuff. I like doing stuff that has got that feel to it. The interesting thing about writing stuff is it isn't actually necessarily what I like listening to best. So I tend to like listening to music. It's got a very, very strong rhythmic drive. But that isn't how it comes out when I play. When I come play it tends to be minor key somewhat mournful and I don't know what that's about but that's how it comes out and it tends not to have such a strong rhythmic drive so and so that's how I ended up doing that CD I just accumulated so much material and I've got a, a huge amount of material sometimes the next album I had intended to record some of the songs that I wrote 30 years ago in some, in some cases 40 years ago some of them just still stand up I mean of course you improve songs all the time little adjustments here and there as one will but it's developed but there's a really strange thing which is that since I uh, since my mid 30s I've developed an, an increasing interest in jazz and I really wish I could play jazz well I can play jazz a bit I've actually got a solo guitar version of Round Midnight that I uh, I tend to record because it is say solo guitar it's kind of surf guitar version of Round Midnight if you can imagine such a thing and actually in Austin, the place I went back to where we visited you two years ago, the place that we went to twice was the Elephant Room, which is, I think, is your is one of your jazz venues. Yeah, it's a pretty popular place. Oh, we saw some great bands there. So I'm, I'm drawn back to jazz all the time, but I'm not a jazz musician. At the end, the bottom line is I'm a bit of a rock musician, really, in the old-fashioned way, still trying to play I think you know I could play some of this Hendrix stuff. It just doesn't sound like Jimi Hendrix. It sounds like it sounds like a middle, or well, not, not middle aged, like an elderly <laughs> bloke living in Cheshire. <laughs> You've got some future stuff you're working on too, though, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got. I mean, I could have retired 
when I was 55. And I had a plan, which was to write and to play music. And that's and I was going to have a second career writing, not about psychiatry, actually, but about other stuff, and, and to make music. And then someone suggested that I should apply for this, this my current job, and it's taken over my life. My second career, I, 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 I didn't hold an academic post until I was 53. And it's just, there's no chance of retiring, which means I'm not going to have much time to do all the things musically that I want to do. But I've got a lot of stuff still to go. And the thing I really, really do want to develop one day with someone is my surf jazz project. Because no one has ever tried to fuse surf music and jazz. And I'm sure I'm the man to do it. <laughs> okay. That sounds like a challenge. Yeah. Although I have to say, I did see that. Now, when I last saw Nick Lowe, what was the name of the Lost Straight Jackets? There's a band, I think they're, I think they're from somewhere in Nashville, somewhere down south. The most fantastic surf band who were a bit, sometimes a bit close to my surf jazz idea, but they didn't call it surf jazz. So I think I can still claim to have invented it. It's a recommendation of an American band for you. They're, they're a great band. All right. Well, if anybody responds and says they're interested in doing surf jazz and they want to get with you for collaboration, I'll be sure and forward that along. Yeah. Well, these days, you know, I mean, we've seen how smoothly our podcast, because I'll tell you what, folks, there's been some problems with this podcast behind the scenes. <laughs> I suppose this is a bit like um, a magician uh, showing how the trick works. But um, so, but, but yeah, you can record stuff. People do record stuff remotely these days. Yes. Um, and, and in fact, there are, I think, some web-based platforms that allow you to do that. You play real time with each other. I think there have been some bands or at least musicians who have gotten together to collaborate in order to host things for people who are stuck at home with COVID as a means of getting out their creativity and also giving people at home something to have. Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, I, I suppose, I mean, it's quite warm where you live, isn't it? Um, it is. It's not very warm. It's very, very wet here. I don't know if you know that. I think you do know that. <laughs> um, it, it, northwest of England, it is wet. And, and, and I actually work in Wales and spend most a lot of my time in Wales. It's even wetter there because it's quite hilly. So it's been quite difficult. In the summer, we did play outside. We had a few occasions when we played outside, which absolutely delighted the neighbours. One thing that the neighbours really, really like hearing, it's a band rehearsing that hasn't played together for six months. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they, they clapped, uh, uh, but I think it, it's, it's so difficult to f- convey sarcasm through clapping, isn't it? It is. <laughs> but I think it was sarcastic clapping. I don't know. I, I think it's fun to, to have people doing something fun, as long as you're not practicing at 1 a.m. Well, that's true. It wasn't at 1 a.m. It was in the middle afternoon. I think, generally speaking, a garage band is expected to be someone in their teens, not to be someone who... Uh, uh, in, in, in their 60s, but there you go. <laughs> who isn't in their teens. Most certainly not in their teens. <laughs> I've got a vague recollection of being in their teens. Okay, well, you have been super generous with your time and information and letting me pick your brain about a big, broad number of topics here. So I want to express my appreciation and just say thank you. Well, thank you. I, I, it's always good to give someone something to get their teeth into it as an editorial job. Um, I have to reveal that Professor Robinson has often referred to me as um, Professor Verbose. Uh, which I, I have to say is fair oh. comment, really. <laughs> That's okay. We'll we'll edit it down and, and get it concise. I did want to give you an opportunity. Do you have any projects or anything going on that you want to plug or that you would like to highlight or feature or promote? Oh, um, you give me a, a, a huge opportunity to talk about our opioid stuff, which is 
and I'm really pleased that you allowed me to talk about that because it's very difficult to get research funding on opioids. And we have managed to get some research funding, but it's not been, it's, none of it's been through the main research funders. We have got, however, uh, quite a substantial project, which was what brought us to Austin two years ago, something called SASHI, South Asia Self-Harm Initiative. And I would just draw people's attention to that, which is about basically developing strategies in, in suicide prevention globally. People don't realise. I mean, you have got, America's got a high rate of suicide as high high income countries go, mainly because of your rates of firearm ownership. All countries that have high rates of firearm ownership have high rates of, of suicide. But India, uh, India in particular, has got a far, far higher rate of, of suicide, which is uh, is very poorly understood. That's why we go to India frequently, because we've got a large funded project that is developing ways of, of doing suicide and self-harm surveillance in low-middle-income countries. So it's, it's, it's in India, but it's also in Sri Lanka and Pakistan. And suicide prevention is very much about public health measures. And often it's about restricting access to the means of taking your own life. I'm not going to get involved in the American gun control issue because, I mean, it's a whole other program, isn't it? But that's your big problem in, in, in the USA around controlling suicide. In India, the big problem is the access, is access to pesticides, particularly organophosphate pesticides. And I suppose if, if there's one thing I really want to draw your attention to, it is the fact that in physical and mental health, public health is the way to go. You can actually prevent mental illness. It is not inevitable. It's not genetically determined. Genetics probably got something to do with it, but that's not the whole story by any means. We can do something about major health problems if we do something about, uh, if we act on the evidence about what you have to do in your society in general to bring rates of preventable illnesses down. Thank you very much. In that case, I'm going to let you go and get back to your evening. Well, unfortunately, I will reveal to you that in our household, we have a bit of a reversal in this house. You know, when we say football, we mean what you call soccer, but that we call it football. And I don't like football. Um, I've never liked football, but my wife is mad keen, football fan. And there's a program called Match of the Day, which is on every Saturday, which has the highlights of all the matches that have been played on a Saturday. And my wife loves to watch that. And it's just started. So I'm going indoors now. And I'm going to have to watch Match of the Day. Thank you very much. Oh. <laughs> well, okay. So it, it, it's been a labour of love. It's been so nice to speak to you, Tracy. And, and thank you for, for just letting me go on. It's been fantastic. And I hope the listeners appreciate it. Um, well, we shall see. <laughs> I'm sure you get some feedback. All right. Okay, bye thank for you. now. Bye. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.